It's great to have you with us today. I hope that all of you have been safe and warm the past couple days. Man, summer is starting to sound really good about now. And for those of you who haven't made it in today, I'm glad you can join us online. And as I get started here, I want to let you know where we stand with our beans and rice offering. And in case you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, two weeks ago, our church went on a beans and rice fast And we ate cheap as a way to save money for this special offering. And the offering goes toward three projects. Number one, we're supporting the ministry of Camp Northward, which is a Christian camp for kids and students down in Pendleton County. Number two, we're providing goats for a group of evangelists from the country of Nepal. Uh, These evangelists right now are training and preparing to go out and plant churches in areas of Nepal where the message of Jesus has not been heard. Now, the goats will help them support themselves and their families as they go plant these churches. So that's very cool. Number three, we're providing scholarships for three Plum Creek College students who are heading to Nepal this summer with Disciple Makers, which is one of our mission partners. Now, our base goal for this offering was $12,000. And we all had the opportunity to give over this past week. And I'm happy to say that as of today, our giving totaled $18,563. So that's awesome. Well over our goal. Praise God for that. And I want to say thank you to everyone who gave. It's, it's going to be exciting to see how God uses this offering And we'll make sure we keep you updated about what happens in each of these three areas. Uh, I'm going to see if we can get some goat pictures to share with you. Uh, It should be fun. And I'm excited to jump into our Kingdom 101 sermon series. Uh, Here in 2022, Plum Creek is focusing on one big theme, the Kingdom of God. And we've learned that this theme of the kingdom of God was absolutely central to the preaching and teaching of Jesus. He he talked about it all the time. But there's a lot of confusion about this phrase today, the kingdom of God. So we've been using a basic definition that that comes from the overall message of Scripture. And if you've been around uh, since the beginning of this series, you've heard this definition almost every week. So let's see if you can fill in the blanks here. The kingdom of God is any place where blank, blank, and blank, blank have truly begun. You know what goes in those blanks? Let's go back. The kingdom of God is any place where God's rule and his reign have truly begun. So what are we talking about here? Are we talking about heaven? Well, in a way, yes, but in a way, no. Heaven is certainly a part of God's kingdom, but it's not the extent of it. There are certain times and certain places where God's kingdom shows up here on earth. For instance, when Jesus walked the earth, the kingdom of God had come near because the king was here. And then today, the kingdom shows up in every true follower of Jesus. It shows up in the church. And why is that? Well, because if you've surrendered your life to Christ and you've put your faith in Jesus then God's rule and his reign have begun in your life. But if we look around, uh, we see that God's kingdom has not spread everywhere because this world is a mess. 
We live in a fallen world. Uh, This world has largely rejected God as king. And that's why we keep praying these words from the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Up in heaven, God's reign is in full force. Uh, His reign is total and complete. But down here, not so much. And that's why we're praying for up there to come down here. And of course, God is the one who makes that happen. But he wants to use us in the process. He's given us a role to play. He wants to partner with us to help his kingdom advance and grow. And that's what we're talking about today, the growth of God's kingdom. We're going to look at a story in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus sends his disciples out on a short-term mission trip. Now, we got a lot of ground to cover, but this story is fascinating, and there's a lot we can learn here. So we'll jump right in. If you have a Bible with you, uh, open up to Matthew chapter 9. And as we begin, Matthew gives a, a short summary of what Jesus has been up to. We'll start with Matthew 9, 35. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. So there he goes again. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. He announces the good news that God's kingdom has come near. And why does he say that? Well, because Jesus has come near. And he's the king. He's the king who will set things right once and for all. But why would anybody believe this good news? After all, at that time, lots of crazy people went around saying crazy things. But Jesus gave some evidence, reasons to believe what he said. He wasn't just talk. He was out there working miracles. He showed people what happens when God's reign breaks into this broken world. The sick are healed. The broken are restored. Wrongs are made right. This is the kingdom we all want to be a part of. Unfortunately, though, we all locked ourselves out of this kingdom when we sinned against God and rejected Him as king. And God had every right to give up on us treat us like the rebels that we are. But that's not what God did. Check out the next verse. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this is one of the most encouraging verses you could ever read. Because when Jesus looks out over this crowd of people, they, they aren't just a sea of faces to him. He knows each one of them better than they know themselves. And and think about this. In that large group of people, do you think that everybody was lovable? Of course not. And in that large group of people, do you think there were a few characters who, who had done some awful things? Of course there were. But how does Jesus see these people? He sees them kind of like sheep who need a good shepherd, someone who will guide them and correct them and take care of them and protect them. And unfortunately, in that day, uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders were not good shepherds. And that had actually been the case for literally hundreds of years. 
way back in the Old Testament, centuries before Jesus, uh, God told the prophet Ezekiel uh, to pass on a message to the leaders of that day. And God was not happy with these guys. Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 34, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. Now, Jesus would have been familiar with this old prophecy. And he, he might have had these words in mind as he looked out over that crowd of people. And like I said, this crowd of people, they, they weren't perfect by any means, but Jesus still loved them. And that's what's so encouraging for us today. Because of Jesus, we know how God looks at us right now. Even with all of our issues and failures and bad decisions, God still has compassion on us. Think about it. Imagine Jesus up on this stage right now, looking at all of you, whoever you are, whatever's in your past, whatever you're struggling with right now, he sees you with compassion. And you can apply that to any crowd that you might see today. You can imagine Jesus at Walmart looking at a line of shoppers waiting to check out. He would see them with compassion. Picture Jesus at a basketball game looking up into the stands. He knows each person better than they know themselves. And he sees them with compassion. Here in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus wants to help the people in this crowd. Um, but there was an issue there. How does he go about doing that? See, Jesus was God, but he was also a man. And if he tried to meet every single need by himself, he'd get burned out pretty quickly. So Jesus asks for help. Look at verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus saw that there was a lot of work to be done. It was harvest time. And if you've ever done any farming, I know many of you have, you know that in the fall when harvest comes, you can't mess around. When I lived in northwest Ohio, I have this image that just sticks in my mind. It would be like harvest time in the fall, and I could be driving around at midnight, and I would see these farmers in their combines with the big lights and they were working to bring in the harvest. They worked almost around the clock because there is an urgency here. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. There's a lot of work to do, and this work is urgent. But why was it so urgent? Well, it goes back to that compassion. When, when Jesus looked at these crowds, he saw that they were hurting. They were lost. And they were headed for an eternity, separated from God. They needed a Savior as soon as possible. And they weren't the only ones. People all over the world needed a Savior. And Jesus knew what was coming for him. He would head to the cross. He would die. He would rise again. And then he would go back to the Father. 
And there would still be all this work to do. So he needed to form a team and then train that group to go out and spread the good news all over the world and invite people into the kingdom. Jesus needed workers. But there's something interesting about this verse. What does Jesus say to the disciples? He doesn't say, go out and recruit all these workers. No, he says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field. In other words, pray. Apparently, prayer would be more effective than recruitment. And why would that be? Well, there's a truth that we see in Scripture. God has designed life in such a way that many things do not happen apart from prayer. We don't always feel that way, do we? Sometimes, maybe lots of times, we feel like whatever happens is going to happen whether we pray or not. But God tells us in His Word that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And when we call on the Almighty Creator of the universe, He hears us and He answers. He may not always give us the answer that we want, but rest assured, in this life, many things will not happen apart from prayer. That's why we're focusing on prayer as we go through this year of the kingdom. I hope that you've been using our monthly prayer calendar. Uh, You can find this calendar in our newsletter, The Beacon. Uh, It's also up on our website at plumcreek.org slash prayer. Uh, Every day, this calendar gives you one simple thing to pray about. And this has been a great tool in our family. It's helped us grow in the way that we pray. For example, last month, There was a day when we were encouraged to pray for our kids and student ministries here at Plum Creek, and we asked one of our kids to do that, and she said, I don't know how to pray for that, because our kids are used to prayers like, "Uh, Lord, keep us safe and healthy, help grandma get better. Those those were the normal prayers, and those are good, but this was kind of a, a stretch. So we talked about it. We said, well, you can pray specifically for Jimmy and Stephanie, and all the volunteers that serve back in Kidstown every week. You can pray for the kids and the students themselves, that they would grow to know and love Jesus. So this was cool. It was great to hear our daughter pray in this new way. Our family is praying in ways that we've never prayed before. So I encourage you to use it. And then the best part is when we get to see God answer our prayers. And back in Matthew 9 here, Jesus says to his disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Ask him to send workers into his harvest field. And how do you think those prayers would get answered? Who would those workers be? Well, it's kind of funny. The disciples didn't have to wait long. That prayer gets answered almost immediately because Jesus commissions the disciples themselves. They become the answer to this prayer. And that leads us into Matthew chapter 10. This is where Jesus sends his disciples on a short-term mission trip. He gives them on-the-job training. And before they go, Jesus has a long list of instructions for them. Uh, So we won't read all of Matthew 10. This is a long passage. But we can read enough to get the main idea. And there's a lot that we can apply here at Plum Creek because the truth is our situation is similar to what Jesus encountered. 
We're surrounded by people with needs, physical and spiritual needs. We're surrounded by people who need a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And when we as a church take our mission seriously, we become an answer to this prayer, which is an exciting thing. So let's move on to Matthew chapter 10. We'll start with verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And then heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now remember, up until this time, Jesus has been doing all the work. He's been the one preaching and teaching. He's been the one healing people. Sure, the disciples were tagging along, but they were just observing. And now, Jesus sends the disciples on their own mission. He tells them to follow his example in two ways. Number one, preach the good news of the kingdom. And number two, demonstrate the power of the kingdom through miracles and healing. Now, just a moment here. I want to pause. Uh, Jesus gives these disciples special authority and special power. And we might look back on that and say, well, we don't have some of the power and authority that the original disciples had. And that's true. Uh, For example, I've never seen anyone raise the dead. And Peter actually does that later on in the book of Acts. So yes, there are some differences between the original disciples and Christians today, but we need to remember something. When Jesus gave out this special power, where did it come from? It came from the Holy Spirit. And this is amazing. All of us who belong to Jesus today, we have access to this same Holy Spirit And he is just as powerful now as he was back then. And the Holy Spirit will enable you to do things that you could never do on your own. So don't forget that. Let's not underestimate what God might want to do through us. But back to the story. Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, two by two. Peter teams up with his brother Andrew. James goes out with his brother John, so on and so forth. And for most of these disciples, this short-term mission trip was a preview of how they'd spend the rest of their lives. And here in Matthew chapter 10, this mission trip is directed specifically to the Jews. But later, by Matthew 28, the mission expands. And Jesus commands his disciples to take the gospel to all nations. The good news of the kingdom would be carried all over the world by followers of Christ. But that's still in the future. For the moment, Jesus has a few more instructions for the disciples. He says down in verse 11, Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. And as you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. Now, this blessing of peace... It's very interesting. You might know the Hebrew word for peace. 
In Hebrew, peace is shalom. Uh, and shalom is actually used as a greeting. Kind of like, hey there, shalom. <laughs> but here, the, the disciples are using this word, this blessing. It's, it's more than just a hello. It's a powerful blessing, not just of peace, but wholeness. Physical, relational, spiritual wholeness. The, these are blessings that come from being a part of God's kingdom. However... There is another side to this. For anyone who rejects God's kingdom, there are serious consequences. In verse 14, Jesus says, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that town or home and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Now, the disciples would have been familiar with this idea of shaking the dust off your feet. That was something that Jews did after they returned from a trip into Gentile territory. When, when they came back to a, a Jewish area, they would literally shake that dirty Gentile dust off of their feet. But here in this context, Jesus is not telling the disciples to kind of throw a, a mini temper tantrum. This is a serious warning. If you reject the good news of God's kingdom, which only comes through Jesus, you're no different than one of those godless Gentiles. You're actually worse off because many of the Gentiles haven't had the opportunity to hear the good news. And Wow, uh, apparently, if God gives you an opportunity and you don't take it, he holds you to a higher level of accountability. And that's a sobering thought for anyone today who hears the gospel over and over again and chooses to ignore it or reject it. But that is the reality. Not everyone accepts the good news. And when Jesus tells his disciples what to expect on this trip, he doesn't sugarcoat it. This is going to be rough. Jesus says, in verse 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. So this won't be just a few doors slammed into your face. This will be straight up persecution. And Jesus uses these animal analogies. He says, Yes, you are like defenseless sheep, and you'll be out among hungry wolves, but it's okay. Why is it okay? Because Jesus is the good shepherd, and he takes care of his sheep. And then this other analogy is kind of interesting, isn't it? Be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. It's kind of a strange combination. Be like snakes and like doves. But it actually makes sense if you're shrewd like a snake you're clear-headed and you're crafty when things get bad you keep your cool and you make smart decisions and then if you're innocent like a dove you keep your intentions pure you don't sink to the level of these people who are out to get you now jesus makes a lot of predictions here as he talks to the disciples he tells them what's coming but it's obvious that he's not just talking about this short-term mission trip. With some of these predictions, he's looking ahead to the long-term ministry of the disciples. 
later in the book of Acts, we, we see the disciples go through all kinds of persecution. And he wants to prepare them for that. Down in verse 22, he says, You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That first part, that's not a very good sales pitch, is it? Follow me and everyone will hate you. But Jesus is just being real. And he says, hang in there, guys. This won't be easy, but it will be worth it. Jesus also explains that in suffering, there is one more way that they're following the example of Jesus. Verse 24, the student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. In other words, I'm I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not doing myself. Jesus knows that he's going to the cross, and he can't skip that part of his mission. Through the crucifixion, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. He suffered and died, and in his suffering, he took our place. And when we decide to become followers of Jesus, we're called to follow him in suffering as well. Look down at verse 38. Jesus says, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now, this is something that Christians often get confused about. Let me ask you a question. If, if you are a Christian, would you say that salvation is a free gift? Well, a lot of us would say, sure, it's free. Ephesians chapter 2. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's a gift from God. You don't earn it. You you can't deserve it. You just receive it. That is absolutely true, but it's not the whole story. Salvation is a free gift, but it comes at a cost. Because when you give your life to Jesus, you die to yourself. You lay your own life down. In other words, you take up your cross every day. And, And we need to be clear about this phrase, take up your cross That phrase is not just a reference to the normal personal problems that we deal with. Some people talk like that, like, man, my boss is just a big jerk. I guess that's my cross to bear. No, that's that's not what this is. In the time of Jesus, a cross was not something that you took lightly. It was an instrument of torture. When you went to the cross, you did not come back. So this is what it means to take up your cross. You are being crucified with Christ. You do that every day because every day we have new ways that we need to surrender to Jesus. We need to say, okay, what I did yesterday, Jesus, I've got to repent of that, pick up my cross again, die to that part of my old self. You, You kill off every part of you that holds you back from full devotion to Jesus. You follow his example of radical self denial. That's what he expects from us. But again, Jesus says to his disciples and he says to us today, God's kingdom is worth any amount of self-denial or suffering. The kingdom of God is a priceless treasure. It's worth giving up everything you have because on the other side of the suffering, there is an eternal reward. Let's go back and look at verse 39 again. Jesus says, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life 
for my sake will find it, will find new life, real life, eternal life. That new life in Christ, it begins here and now, but it stretches on into eternity. And once we get to that final and complete version of God's kingdom, any suffering in this world will be long forgotten. It won't even be a blip in your memory because we'll be completely consumed by the joy of worshiping God in His presence, of seeing Jesus face to face. Whether we realize it or not, that's where we all want to be. So what is the end of this story? How, how did this mission trip turn out? What happened? Well, you have to jump over to the Gospel of Mark to see the end of the story. In Mark chapter 6, verse 12, we read this. The disciples went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now, I'm sure the disciples were really excited to see how God used them to do these amazing things. And this is good for us to remember because following Jesus and doing ministry, it's difficult. If it's not difficult, we're not doing it right. However, there is joy in the journey all along the way. It's exciting and fulfilling to see God working in you and through you. No, it's not easy, but it is worth it. So that is the short version of this story. And I hope you'll go back and read the whole thing this week. Before we're done, though, I was thinking about takeaways from this story. And I thought of three things that uh, are really helpful for us. So let's, let's look at these very quickly. First, followers of Jesus have been sent to share the good news of God's kingdom. And that might seem pretty basic, but this is something that many Christians today struggle with. Maybe most of us struggle with this. I saw a recent Barna study where they surveyed millennials who claim to be Christians. And by definition, the millennial generation includes anyone born between 1984 and 1998. And if you fall in that age group, please know that I'm not picking on you here. Uh, my generation has all kinds of issues, just like every generation. But in this study, here's what they found. Among Christian millennials... 96% of them said, part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. 96%. Cool. So far, so good. In that same age group, 94% of them said, the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. That's also very cool. But then check this out. Almost half of these millennial Christians said, it's at least somewhat wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. 47% said they agree or at least somewhat agree with that statement. So what's the breakdown here? How can you believe number one and number two and also believe statement number three? Well, this is the message of our culture. Our culture says, hey, you can believe whatever you want as long as you don't try to convert someone else to your beliefs. As Tim Keller points out, there's something funny about that. Uh, if you say it's wrong to convert people, 
You are trying to convert someone to the belief that it's wrong to convert people. But that's not my main point here. My main point is this. According to our culture today, if you say that Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to salvation, you're being intolerant or bigoted. Think about this, though. Let's, let's say that somebody somewhere finds the cure to cancer. All cancer. It, it can be cured with whatever this person found. At the same time, lots of other people are coming up with new experimental treatments for cancer, but none of those other treatments work. Now, what if that person said, I'm sorry, but you guys are wrong. My treatment does work. I, I do have the cure here. Well, if you do have the only cure, it's not bigoted to say that. It's just the truth. And the truth is, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. So if we are following Jesus, we do have the cure. And if we believe what we say we believe, and if we care about people, it only makes sense to share that good news. So that's takeaway number one. True followers of Jesus will share the good news even though we might be rejected, even though it may be uncomfortable. And that takes us to the second takeaway. Followers of Jesus should not expect comfort. Now, we don't like to hear that. We want that comfort, don't we? But if you go back and read Matthew 10, it's very, very clear. Followers of Jesus should not expect comfort. I have a friend named Phil who is also a preacher. And a few years ago, I heard Phil say something that was simple, but it was also profound. Phil said, when you love God, you will love people. When you love people, you will act. And when you act, it will cost you. It may cost you time or energy or money or disappointment or frustration it may even bring you persecution, but it will cost you. You know, Jesus didn't hesitate the cost, even when it meant giving up his own life, and he expects nothing less from us. But I'll give you one more takeaway, and this one is very, very good. Followers of Jesus will be blessed with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we may not always be comfortable, but we will be comforted. At the very end of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples to go out into the world and make more disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all of his commands. It's the Great Commission. And I love what Jesus says at the very end of the Great Commission. After he sends his disciples on the greatest mission trip of all time, he tells them, be sure of this, I am with you always to the very end of the age. God will not always prevent us from being harmed, but he does promise that he will always be with us. He sees you. He cares for you. He's always working for the good of those who love him. And through his spirit, he gives you the power to do what he wants you to do. And he gives you the strength to get through even the toughest trials. God is always, always good. And he's always worth it. So let's pray for God's kingdom to come. 
Let's pray for more workers to go out into the harvest field. And let's realize that God is calling us to be an answer to that prayer, to be those kingdom workers. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we read your word, sometimes we are comforted, sometimes we're challenged. And I feel that challenge today. But I pray, Lord, that as a church, we will take that challenge knowing that you will uh, enable us to do the work that you've called us to do. It's through your power and for your glory, and it's all worth it in the end. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.